Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, chapter 7. This is a message that the Lord has laid on my heart for the last couple of weeks. Something that I have been uh, dealing with, um, with the Lord, praying about, um, wrestling with even at night in those hours when you're trying to uh, get to sleep and they're in that kind of caught in that between times of sleep and awake. It's a, a message that the Lord has given me that is just simple and to the point um, about what needs to happen. And over the last few days and even couple of weeks, the Lord has just instilled within me this thought that we as a congregation need a movement of God. That we need to have God the Spirit of the living God move in and among us and through us, that we need to be challenged and convicted, that we need to be moved from our comfort zones, that we need to be changed in a way that can only come from the Holy Spirit of God. And as I have dealt with that and thought about that, the Lord put a couple of passages of Scripture on my mind, one that we're going to talk about is Second Chronicles 7.14. That's where I ask you to turn. And basically we're talking about preparing for a movement of God. Because here's the thing. We cannot coerce. We cannot manipulate. We cannot make God move at all. If God desires that He does not want to move in our midst, there is nothing you and I can do about that. But at the same time, Scripture teaches that if God desires to move among His people, there are things that we can do to prepare ourselves for a movement of God. Now, I hope you understand, I'm not just talking about us getting a feeling about God. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit of God invading this congregation and our lives changing who we are, and radically altering the way we go about presenting who He is in the way that we live and the way that we talk. And so when I was thinking through all that, I, I began to read through some things on a, a good old Baptist word, which is revival. Now, most of the time in Baptist churches when you talk about revival, that people think, well, Pastor, we can't have one of those. We didn't put it on the sign, and we didn't call in a special speaker, and we hadn't had special music, and hadn't publicized it. So revival is those things you have where you meet every night for about a week. That's not what revival is, right? I mean, we know that. I was reading a uh, message that a guy named Ari Tori wrote a long time ago about revival. And he based it off of an interesting um, passage of Scripture to base it on. He, he, he based it on Mark 8.36. You don't have to turn there, but Mark 8.36 comes at the end of that place in Mark where Jesus is describing what it takes to follow him. He predicts his death, and then he says, And to follow me, you must take up your cross and follow me. If any man wants to save his life, he will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, then you will gain life. And then he says at the end of that, he says, I mean, what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world, but you lose 
your own soul. And in this passage that, that R.A. Torrey wrote, this message he wrote, he, he talked about the, the, the truth is there that, that many of us think of that, or I've always kind of thought of that as a, why would you exchange the present for a future that is glorious? Why, why would you um, focus on present things, stuff of this world, money, power, fame? Why would you focus on that when God has offered you so much in eternity? Why would you forfeit eternity for now? But as I've looked at it this week, I definitely think that's part of it. But part of it is this. Why would you ever even exchange the glory of following the Lord right now for that kind of passing stuff? This is what Ari Tori says. He says to lose your soul just means to fall short of that for which God created you. To miss the divine image. To have the divine image blotted out and the image of the devil stamped in its place. To lose the soul is to come short of the knowledge of God. To lose communion with God and the likeness to God. And to fall short of the glory of God. The question is, what shall it profit you to gain all this world has? All its wealth, all its honor, all its pleasures, all its power. And lose your true selves. Lose that for which God created you. Lose communion with God and living for the glory of Him. The Lord just kind of led me to Second Chronicles chapter 7. It's a familiar passage. Some of you might be able to quote it. But it's one of those passages that people preach when revival time comes. But for you and me, I hope it will be something that spurs us into thinking about renewal and revival in our own lives. Second Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 11 says this if you're using the U version app it'll be we'll pick up in verse 13 but i want to read the first couple of verses just to set the scene it says when solomon had finished the temple of the lord now you have to understand this was a high point in the history of israel the temple of the lord was this magnificent building it was unbelievable people would come from all around to look at it they had finished it they had dedicated it they had prayed over it and when they had finished the glory of the lord had so filled that place that they could not get in the doors And all of the priests and the people had fallen on their faces outside the temple. They had had an amazing worship service for about seven days. And Solomon is at the end of it all. He had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord in his own palace. And the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. That's a huge deal. God's saying, I am pleased. I approve. But then we get to verse 13 and 14. And what God basically tells Solomon is this. It won't always be like this. There are going to come moments when people move away from me. There are going to come moments when they begin to disobey. There are going to come moments when they forget whom they deserve to give praise to. They're going to forget who it is that gives them all of these things. And when they forget, when they walk away, when they move away, when they turn away from me and I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. This is worst case scenario. I said earlier, this is not $3 a gallon gas. This is $10 a gallon gas. This is war breaking out near your home. This is pestilence, insects everywhere. This is a biomedical outbreak that you don't know what to do anything about. When that happens, 
When there's no rain, so you, you're not going to have any crops, you're not going to have any food, you're not going to have any value. When the, the locusts are devouring and when the plagues come, when all that happens and you are so desperate, you want anything to change, and you're looking for a way to get back into a place like today. Verse 14 gives us a prescription for a revival that has been true since this telling all the way to today. If my people, if the ones called by my name, if my nation, my chosen ones, the ones that I have delivered time and time again, if the ones that I have sought out, that I have called from a New Testament perspective, if the ones that have accepted the grace and the gift of my son Jesus and his death on the cross and the glorious resurrection, those people in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, those people who make up the church of the living God, if those people called by my name will humble themselves, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. There are four steps. Four steps of this prescription in order to prepare yourself for a movement for God. And the first thing is this. You must demonstrate humility. That leads you to pray. That leads you to a passion for the Lord and that results in repentance. It's a four-step process. You don't get them out of order. And the truth is, if you don't have them in this order, you're not going to move on to the next step. Without humility, prayer is useless. Without prayer, you're not going to have the passion to follow the Lord. And without a desire to follow the Lord, repentance won't even cross into your mind. And so it's a step-by-step process. Now somebody says, what is humility? Humility is one of those strange things that the moment you know you've got it, you've lost it. It's the, it's the thing that it's hard to get a grasp on. When I, I think humility is one of those words that it's better to understand humility or easier sometimes to understand humility by understanding the opposite of humility. So tell me, what's the opposite of humility? Pride, vanity. And Scripture tells us over and over again that Pride is one of the greatest enemies that we can have in our spiritual life. In fact, John Stott, a writer, says that pride is the greatest enemy in our development as a disciple of Christ. It's when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on Him. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's good because I am not proud. That, 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 I am sure of one thing. I'm not proud. I'm not arrogant. I don't think too much of myself. Well, Pride is more than just thinking you're great. I mean, sometimes having a pity party is being prideful. Sometimes focusing on your weaknesses all the time is a form of pride. C.S. Lewis is the one that famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You see, sometimes pride shows up in different ways. Like, uh, anybody ever know anybody that was stubborn? Okay, no elbows or pointing, please, right? You ever know anybody that was stubborn? What does being stubborn mean? I want my way or I know I'm right. Aren't you glad none of us ever get in that way, huh? Stubborn means being, I know I'm right. You can't convince me otherwise. You can't tell me otherwise. I don't care what you say. I know I'm right. Well, what that basically means is 
you can't change my mind because I am so sure of who I am. When people become stubborn, it's a thing of pride. When you refuse to change, it's a thing of pride. When you won't listen to anybody else, it's a thing of pride. When you are not willing to try something new, it's a sense of pride. There are lots of ways that we have pride. Now, that's not a big deal if pride wasn't such a big deal to God. People in our society use the word hate a lot. I mean, as we speak, there is a, a little basketball game going on. And one team's wearing blue and has a K and Kentucky written on the, on the jersey. And one team is wearing the glorious orange and has Tennessee written on there. Some, it is absolutely killing some of you right now. What is going on in that game, right? Here's what I know. Because of where you grew up or your allegiances, there are people on both sides of that that will say, I just hate Kentucky Blue. I hate that UT Orange. It's the ugliest color in the world. That's not me saying that. I'm saying I've heard that, right? So we say we hate silly stuff. I mean, we talk about foods we hate. I extremely dislike sauerkraut. Anybody with me on that? How many of you like sauerkraut? We will be praying for you this afternoon, all right? There's no redeeming quality in sauerkraut's taste, all right? What about you? What are some things you hate? What foods do you dislike? Liver, Brussels sprouts, artichokes. Nobody has mentioned chocolate. What's going on here? It's all healthy stuff, right? We throw away that word kind of loosely sometimes. But here's the thing. If Scripture says God hates anything, I think we ought to take it pretty seriously. And in Scripture, listen to this. This is Proverbs 6. It says that the Lord hates. It reveals things that the Lord hates and that are abomination to Him. And the first thing on the list, number one on the list, are haughty eyes that come from a proud man. Proverbs 8.13, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. It is hard to find stronger language for sin in all of Scripture than is applied to pride. Now, here's the reason. Pride is basically saying, I am not in need of anything else, and I set myself at a place of importance. And what happens is, when you do that, you forget about the mercy and the grace and the love of God that even established you to be able to do anything on this earth. There was a quick and tidy cure for pride throughout Scripture. All it took was for somebody to get a vision of who God is. Moses at the burning bush, what does he do? Takes off his shoes because he's... On holy ground, the Lord speaks to him. Isaiah walks into the temple and the glory of the Lord is all around and it's shaking. And he sees a vision of the Lord. And what does he do? He cries, woe is me. Right? You get to the New Testament and uh, Jesus uh, calms the storm. And what happens? The disciples immediately get on their faces and say, my Lord and my God. Thomas, the doubter, right? What happens when Jesus appears to him and shows him the nail prints? Thomas immediately is humbled in the presence of God. There is no 
cure for humility for pride than being humbled in the presence of God. And anytime you feel like you're feeling your oats or you're strong enough to handle anything, you just need to get a vision of the Lord. Scripture says that if you want the prescription for the Lord doing something amazing, you must come to Him humbly, on your knees, praying before Him. That's the second thing. It is not only just in humility, but it's in prayer. One guy said that history belongs to those who pray, those who believe and pray the future into being. It's about coming into the presence of the Lord. It's about placing yourself in a place where you can hear from Him. It is about expressing to Him the things that you desire to see, but more importantly, that listening to what He desires to do in your life. It is about coming completely in surrender to Him. In Matthew 6, the disciples come and say, Jesus teaches how to pray. And Jesus begins to talk about some things and he says, basically, the secret of prayer is secret prayer. And then he tells them, and make sure when you're praying, you mean what you say, that you don't use big words that you would normally use, but that you talk honestly and openly with the Lord, that you don't try to come up with what you think the Lord wants you to say, but that you say what you're actually feeling. And as you do, you build a relationship with God. And prayer is expected and commanded in Scripture. And if we're going to see the Lord move in our lives, it's commanded from Him as well. It says that we come humbling ourselves in prayer. And then it says, seeking His face. That's the passion part. That means that we go after the Lord with all that we have. The the word seek my face there literally means to go in a passionate pursuit, an all-out search for the person and the presence of God. To do everything you can to live your life in such a way that you are committing yourself to the passionate pursuit of God for the glory of His name and the sake of His kingdom. When was the last time you passionately searched for the person and the presence of the Lord? I was thinking this week about a time, uh, about a year ago, um, when we were at uh, Cole's department store. You know Cole's, right? Uh, Cole's farm. We were in Jackson, actually, at Cole's, and um, we were there as a family. And um, uh, Luke decided that he thought it would be funny to hide in the clothing racks. Okay, didn't tell him. Didn't tell us. I, I had him. Uh, Susan was off another part of the store. It was my responsibility. And Dad, you know, when you've got the kids, at that point, the major thing is don't lose the kids, right? I mean, that's the, the number one responsibility. Don't lose the kids. And then secondly, don't let them do anything that would embarrass you. Okay. And so Luke decides he's going to hide. And I, I'm walking along. I don't remember what we're looking at. And then I turn around and all of a sudden I realize he's gone. Now, in that moment, parents, you've all experienced a moment like that. Heart sinks, pit of the stomach goes, and you think, uh-oh, I've got to find my son. And so the first thing you do is you kind of start walking around. Luke, where'd you go, Luke? Hey, Luke. And then your pace gets a little faster and your voice gets a little louder. And before long, you may be in one corner of the store and you don't care if they hear you in the other store. Luke, where are you? And you're going back and forth searching everywhere you can to find Luke. You are on a passionate pursuit for the person and the presence of Luke. Now listen, the Lord brought that image to mind because 
not that God is hiding from us. It's not a where's Waldo kind of search. But our lives ought to be a passionate pursuit for the person and the presence of God. In that department store, I would have done whatever was necessary to find my son. When was the last time that your life was consumed with the pursuit of the person and the presence of God? What are you pursuing now passionately? What consumes your mind? What consumes your money? What consumes your energy? What consumes your thought life? What consumes your dream life? What consumes your time allotment? If we want to see the Lord move, it means that we must humble ourselves and pray that we seek Him with all that we have. And here's the last thing. And that we repent of those things that are wrong in our lives. It says in Scripture here, if we will turn from our wicked ways, Repentance talks about changing our mind that leads to a change in action. It involves both the positive and negative aspects of confession and of turning towards the Lord. And the question simply is, have you opened your life up to the Lord to allow Him to show you those things that you need to get rid of? Psalm 139, 23 and 24 says that when we open our lives, we ask the Lord to search us and to know us and to try us and know our anxious thoughts. And then it says, and Lord... Would you show me those things in my life that are offensive to you? When was the last time you opened your life up to the Lord and allowed Him to examine what is offensive to Him? And when He shows you, are you willing to repent? Look what it says at the end of verse 14. It says, when you do that, when my people... In humility, come before me, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. It says, then will I, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Here's what the Lord has just spoken to me in a very real way, is that we need a movement from the Lord. We need a movement from God. But that will not happen until we, as believers, till we, as a church, come before Him humbly, seeking Him in prayer, till we come seeking Him with all that we have, ready to turn from those things in our life that are offensive to Him. Now, I'm not naive enough to know that there aren't people here today that you came and you've listened and... It's just going to kind of pass on by. But for those of you that the Lord may be dealing with your heart, where status quo is not good enough, where just, you know, there was a quote this week, some of you studied it in Sunday school from uh, A.W. Tozer that said that you can build everything you want in a church, unbelievable church programming and building and music and preaching, and if the Holy Spirit of God is in it, then you have built Nothing. If you're here today and your desire is not just for more of the same, but your desire is for the Spirit of the living God to embolden you and this congregation to step out and to do things and to see the Lord move like we could have never expected, then would you commit to humbling yourself, to praying, to seeking the person and the presence of the Lord with all that you have, 
and for repenting of those things that are offensive in your life.